Uh, I have many questions. Uh, however, I mean, we do have some time, so if you're super fast and tweet at the conf QA, you might still get one in. And otherwise, of course, the speakers can get back to you after. Generation uh, DuckTales. The DuckTales generation would like to know, uh, how do you prevent abuse publishing of data uh, in, uh, decentralized, in, the, in the decentralized web? So it connects very much to what we were just talking about with Amy. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, this question comes up a lot. Uh, it's a really good question. So you, you should think of this, that the base layer of this decentralized internet, uh, there is no censorship there. Right? So you're free to publish anything you want at the base layer because you have the freedom of speech. But users on the client side can actually have blacklists. So let's say we are a manufacturer of a browser and we have a default blacklist and we can put something there. Users can opt out of it if they want or they can opt explicitly into certain type of censorship. Right? So that's the model that we believe can work here. Okay. I'm, I'm wondering uh, whether, so, so I'm struggling a lot with this whole version of the new internet. I'm, I'm trying to think, I'm, so I'm probably going to ask stupid questions. But will it, not, will it not become a little bit more like the real world? So we have more, as you were saying, this is the metaphor with the robber. But in the real world, we have, in fact, also organized in all kinds of structures so that we don't have to individually be responsible for every single decision that happens in, in our... And all, for instance, we have centralized our protection in things like police forces and so on. So are you engaging? people in the blockchain world with these kinds of questions of like, what is the digital society that you're actually constructing now? Yeah, again, again, a great question. We get this a lot. And over there, I think the thing to think about is that you can build a centralized service on top of a decentralized layer, but you cannot do it the other way around. A great example of this is this company called uh, Coinbase. Uh, they're a Bitcoin wallet. They actually don't keep your Bitcoins on your private keys. It's a centralized company that works more like a bank. You deposit your stuff, but you can actually take it out anytime you want and move over, and you have the option of keeping the same Bitcoins with your private keys. So I would just say that you cannot build it the other way around, but you can have decentralized services on top of a decentralized internet. So one challenge that I'm thinking, your, your diagram about solving problems from the sort of correct level of the tech stack made me think uh, about Caroline's talk, because there is also a reality stack. We are constructing reality in, on many levels, and I think if we're, I, I, what I realized, what you were saying was, oh, we're trying to, we're, try, we're fiddling on the wrong level. We're trying to solve a problem that, that we think is about the media, but actually it's probably on some, some other level of the structure. And I guess then the, this is a very broad question, I'm sorry, but, but, but it is, what, how do we go about dealing with issues of fake news and, and non-truths and, and, and sourcing information on the internet? Yeah, okay, that's a great question, and thank you for asking it. And the answer is, we're still figuring it out. Um, I, I think that one thing that can be helpful with that is thinking about media literacy. I talked a little bit about media literacy, like learning to be critical about sources, um, to see that as necessary but not sufficient, mm -hmm. right? So it's not that the problem is necessarily being thought of as mislocated, it's that this, these problems we have with media are manifestations of underlying problems on a broader level. Um, and uh, as someone who writes histories, uh, I think a lot about what it means to construct something that will be taken as true. And uh, that can be fraught work. 
So I find it helpful to think about when, in my practice when I'm writing historical accounts to think less about is uh, like this truth, holding up truth as the, as the goal, um, to think about uh, verifiability, mm. right? Like can you find a couple of sources and verify that the thing you're talking about happened? But also fidelity, right? So in my case, it, with my historical work, I need to be faithful to the way that the people I'm writing about in history saw the world, but I also need to be faithful to my own view as a critic and make commentary on that. So I think it's making room for a multi-perspectival uh, approach, which is uncomfortable if we want to just get to a thing called truth, but I think holding that a little more loosely gives room for those multiple perspectives. So there's some interesting, and I mean, this actually ties in again, Amy, with your talk, but there is some kind of weird tension here about problems of behavior that, that you cannot solve them purely on the behavior side, and you also cannot solve them, I think, purely on the technology side, even mm -hmm. though, Munir, to be, to be honest, it, it does, I mean, I realize why, but it does come across a little bit like you're saying, we can totally solve this just with technology. Is, is that what you're saying? No, uh, I'm no. not. <laughs> I, I think I would say that our technology right now is so broken mm -hmm. that we need to fix the technology while we are working towards like fixing uh, other behavioral issues and, and, and education mm -hmm. and telling people about like all these different problems and trying to change behavior as well. But if we try to do that on broken systems, it's probably going to have a very minimal impact. Yeah, Amy, what are you thinking? Yeah, so people always ask me like, what do we do about texting, right? And I can give you the legal answers and I can give you the technology change answer, but the big picture answer is like, we need to end sexism. And that's hard, like it's with us, right? It's hard. And so the whole reason that these privacy violations have power and they have teeth is because of slut shaming. Yeah. Because we have this double standard where we look at sexually active women and we're happy for women to be sexual objects, if you look at any commercial ever produced. Um, but we're very uncomfortable with women and especially teenage girls, at least in the US and many places, um, with them being sexual, um, uh, agents, having sexual agency and choice. And so that's how we end up with that slut shaming. So it's, if, if we didn't have that, in theory, a privacy violation would just be sort of mildly embarrassing. But it's not, it can be devastating because yeah. people get harassed and they can get fired from their jobs. There's been stories of a, of a school teacher who posted a photo on Facebook with her fiance's hand like on her breast, wearing a bathing suit at the beach, and the school fired her because that was inappropriate. Um, she ended up getting her job back. But it's that kind of attitude that just sort of underlies all of this. But I agree that if we have better technology, my hope is maybe that's part of the solution, but it's definitely not the only solution. It's just kind of one aspect of it. Uh, Björn Gunsland would like to know, has the term fake news lost its usefulness since it was co-opted by right-wing publications and voices? So I guess one answer to that is it wasn't ever very useful because it's so vague, right? But, <laughs> but there is something different about the way it's now uh, like a dog whistle term almost. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely true. And you see this quite often with these kind of social phenomena that there's a euphemism treadmill, right? That people will say... A euphemism treadmill. Oh. Yeah, so there's, there's one term that gets used and then it gets co-opted and another term comes into use and this just goes on and on and on, right? So, um, yeah, I think we can really acknowledge that the term fake news has, been, has become kind of a weapon to wield against the already fragile legitimacy of the press. Um, there is still something to be said, though, for pointing out, I mean, I think it's still important to point out 
weird framing. So it's still important to point out when people get the story wrong. Those things still matter. I, I, we're running out of time, and I have so many enormous questions. So I'm just going to jump to like, who should act on this? Like, whose responsibility is it to use the right words and to try and, and stem the tide of, of uh, all of this, these words losing their meaning to the point where we cannot even describe reality anymore because we are living in these bubbles and so on? On which levels? So you all get to answer this question. Where, where do we start? Like, if you get to, to make one change in the world, which one is it? Let's start right here. I mean, everyone. I think everyone has a role. People who make laws have a role. People who make technology have a role. And even just individual users. One of the things I suggest is people think about consent in your own practices. So if I take a photo of you, I should just ask you, like, do you mind if I post this? Mm -hmm. And I think even just by doing something so simple as saying, like, can I post that photo? Um, it can have a lot of power to, to say, that's a norm. We should be asking people, like, can I post your photo? Is that OK? That's great. Monique? I think if there's one thing I would suggest people to do is to not be complacent. Like people have this attitude that, hey, this is just the way the internet is, or this is just the way software works, and this is my life online. You should actually demand more from internet companies. You should actually demand your rights, and you should actually think of ways that this is not the only way there could be actually a better way of doing things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I would say people together. Um, Media literacy is really important. It's good to be critically analytical about what we take in, but uh, I think it's really important to acknowledge that we're in a moment when a couple of platforms have a hell of a lot of power. And if people join together, they can make a difference to change things with that. Uh, the example of Sleeping Giant in the United States is a great example of this, if you're familiar with this. Um, the news site Breitbart, which is, publishes some very hateful material, um, some folks got together and started a campaign to tweet to Breitbart's advertisers and say, hey, you know, Breitbart just published something that said, women makes birth control ugly and stupid. Do you want to be advertising on this mm -hmm. site? And um, made a real difference to the kind of funding that's going through programmatic advertising. Like a lot of these advertisers didn't even realize their ads were on this site, mm -hmm. right? So intervening and intervening together um, so that individual people can start to make themselves manifest as a force that can uh, stand up to some of these big organized. Powers. And I also love that answer because it connects back to that thing where we have to think about like the full impact of our professional environments. Like where does my company's advertisement actually show up? That's one of those practical things that we can all take a look at. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Caroline Jack, Munib Ali, and Amy Hasna. Thank you.